Well, why don't you pray with me, guys? Let's bow our heads and commit our time to the Lord's Word today. Heavenly Father, thank you so much uh, again for your love and care uh, for this flock. And uh, what a delight it is to, to worship together and to recount your faithfulness and even, Lord, our desire to hear you speak. You speak through your Word. It gives us life. gives us light. gives us everything we need to, to know you and to follow you. We pray, Lord, that we would internalize the truths that, are, that go forth today uh, from the Scriptures, that we would be changed by it, that we would know you, know you truly, and to love and delight in you, Lord. Give us wisdom to understand the Scriptures and also the wisdom to apply it. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So once again, we will be in the book of Matthew, book of Matthew chapter 23, if you guys want to turn there in preparation. And we are using this as sort of a, uh, a sidekick passage for our longer study in 2 Peter chapter 3. And one of the main reasons we're here, apart from just me having some extra time to uh, dive into the depths of 2 Peter 3, is to see what it is, just what it is that is going to be burned away. Now, if we are in 2 Peter, one of the things that we read, and it's a very interesting verse, it is in 2 Peter 3, uh, verse 10, it says, The day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. And so we took those last words in the verse, burned up, and explored that a little bit, and there's lots of opinions about what that actually means. One of it means to to be discovered, to be uncovered, that is, we will see something for what it is. And so we kind of take that theme and then, and then read it back into Matthew 23. Because as, as you recall, last week we talked about how Matthew 23, interestingly enough, is the chapter before Matthew 24, which describes everything that Peter is talking about in 2 Peter chapter 3. He's talking about that great judgment that is coming in Jesus. Uh, teaches it, teaches about it to his disciples much more fully in Matthew 24. But in Matthew 23, we see what leads up to that. What leads up to that very important uh, sermon, basically known as the Olivet Discourse. What is it that is going to be burned away? And we find not only is Jerusalem going to be destroyed, but in Matthew 23, we uncover particular associated with that old Judaic and apostate order. Remember, the, Ju- the Judaism we see in Jesus' own time is hardly faithful. You could really see it as just the, the zenith, really, the apex of unfaithful religion. That even God's own people are being led by idle shepherds. They are misrepresenting the Word of God. And as Jesus in Matthew 23 exposes this Phariseeism, there are particular lessons in it for even the church today. There are three things, three primary things that Jesus covers here that I would say must be exposed and burned away. And a church must play the long game when it comes to this. These are things, even though they are characteristic of the old order, of the old creation, 
that didn't simply vanish when Jerusalem was judged. These, are, these three things, I would say, are, are, pri- are the primary three characteristics of any apostate order. These are things that will continue to afflict the church. And I would say these three things, and we only covered one of them last Lord's Day, these three things, I would say, are the primary things that undermine the church's mission. Remember, we are working with, within the inauguration of the new heavens and new earth. And as the gospel gains ground, as Christ puts all his enemies under his feet, we see clearer and clearer the arrival and the coming and really the manifestation of the new heavens and new earth. And Peter is careful to tag at the end of that description in his own second letter that this will be a new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells. And so what Jesus is going to expose here are things that cannot coexist with righteousness. They undermine the very cause of righteousness. And so we will see that these are three things that need to be rooted out. They were characteristic of the apostasy of first century Judaism, but they are also characteristic in unfaithful churches. And I would say the church must fight to be vigilant toward these three particular things. We don't want these things to undermine the Christ. We want to pursue righteousness. We want to advance the righteous cause of the gospel. And so I would say these three things, which we will get into today, must be discovered, they must be seen for what they are, and finally, they must be burned away. And I would say it is a labor of love. This is not going to be done away with in one generation. Proof of that is the last 2,000 years that the church has been fighting against it. But nonetheless, these are attitudes that we contend against. And we will see in the words of Christ himself how we contend against them. So the first thing, if you're at Matthew 23... In the first couple of verses, we observe this. Look at, look at 23. Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. So very simply, the first characteristic of this is hypocrisy. It's no mystery when we look at this. What is Jesus exposing? He's exposing the hypocrisy of the current religious leadership within first century Jerusalem and by extension first century Judaism. This system is ruled by hypocrites. And we find that hypocrisy is, is expressed in the fact that there is no consistency in your walk. Hypocrisy means that there is no consistency in your walk. And that, of course, is expressed by the very example of the Pharisees, scribes, and chief priests. All that leadership ended up being some kind of spiritual mafia that expressed hypocrisy in, most, in the most persuasive way. They misrepresented God. That is why Jesus Himself said, hey, what they teach, it's authoritative as long as they teach the Word of God, listen to them, but don't do what they do. Don't follow their example because they are hypocrites. And yes, hypocrisy... We, we usually describe it as, you know, you're not practicing what you preach. You're pretending to be something that you're not. But I'd say the high crime and misdemeanor of hypocrisy is this. It's not so much pretending to be something we're not, but it is saying that God is something that He isn't. Here's what I mean. 
When we act as hypocrites, when we pretend that we believe the gospel and yet act contrary to it, what we are saying is that the gospel has no power. We are saying that God, who himself gives witness of the fact that it is the power of the gospel that changes our lives and that brings us life and that ultimately transforms us into the image of Christ, does not really do that. That it really has no power. So in that sense, we find hypocrisy at its most offensive. It is ultimately misrepresenting the Lord. So it is far worse than simply saying and not doing. It is, it is far worse than simply pretending to be what you're not. It is saying that God is something that He is not. Or saying that God isn't something that He is. So that's the first one. Here's the second one, which I think will also be obvious. Remember, these are three overarching historical things, that, historical characteristics that afflict the church that we must root out. First is hypocrisy. The secondly is legal, second is legalism. This old system that is going to be burned away is legalistic and is manifested in this, is that the legalist has no compassion for the weak. So the hypocrite has no consistency in his walk, but the legalist has no compassion for the weak. Notice what Jesus says. Let's look at our text in verse 4. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. So we say that this person is legalistic. Well, what is legalism? First and foremost, and we typically don't use it in this fashion, but I think if we read especially the Apostle Paul, we find that legalism is simply seeking justification through the works of the law. Seeking justification in any other way than by grace through faith. Well, if you throw out by grace through faith, then what are you left with? You're left with works. You're left with your own efforts, your own merit, your own wisdom, your own strength. So that's what it is. Seeking justification through works of the law. And that, of course, is a counterfeit righteousness. And if you're going to be, if you're going to dwell in a realm where righteousness reigns, then you better have a real righteousness, which is only by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. So it is this very thing that Paul decries in the book of Galatians. But typically how we understand it, and this, this simply flows out of what Paul was, was exposing, is that typically we understand legalism as putting binding commands on people where Scripture does no such thing. Where we say, you must do this where God Himself has not said that thing. That's typically how we understand legalism today. You could even expand that definition as one who tries to obey the Word of God in his own strength. He may have the truth, but he has not yet grasped the fact that the, the power and presence of the Holy Spirit is necessary to walk in obedience. Anything other than that is just a sham. And this definitely is a byproduct of a legalistic mindset. But here's the thing. Here's the thing that should trouble the church even today, and I think it's always troubled the people of God, is that where legalism is so destructive and why is that it is never compartmentalized. A self-righteous, legalistic person who's constantly patting himself on the back for being able to obey the commandments of God is never going to keep that to himself. We've all met that person. Perhaps at one time or another, we were that person. We thought we were so righteous. And we decided that we needed to let everyone else know that that was the case. And that typically manifests itself in demanding that others live up to the same rigorous code that we do. 
It never stays local. And what it ends up being, as one man writes, a kind of spiritual intimidation where, no, where, where one subscribes one's spirituality as the ability to keep man-made rules. And Paul answers this in Colossians 2.16. He says, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink. They are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And that's one thing that legalism inevitably does. It takes us away from the substance. And if you take yourself away from the substance, which is Christ, you take away the very person who is underwriting our righteousness. Legalism takes our eyes off grace, takes our eyes off the sufficiency of what Christ has accomplished and causes us to look inward. That's what self-righteousness does. It's inward-looking to what we are able to do, to where our strengths are. As opposed to looking to God's strength, God's ability to work Christ-likeness within us. And what, of course, this does is add numerable burdens that do not even apply to the believer. Now, if you look back at Matthew 23, you see this. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders. I would see this mostly as coming down to spiritual duties, right? things that they should be doing. Right Now, again, we can understand this, in, I think, with a variety of combinations. We're not to look at this and to assume that there is no Word of God in this. As we find out at the beginning of this passage, the Pharisees were teaching some of the Scriptures. The problem is, is when you start adding traditions to the Scriptures, when you start demanding things of people that God does not demand. That's not all that's involved. Even if you took away traditions... If you present the Word of God in such a way that strips the, per, that strips the law of God from faith right, or grace or the power of God, you are tying a heavy burden and putting it on man's shoulders. That's the very error that the Jews made, and Paul talks about it in the book of Romans. The problem that the Jews faced wasn't so much that they had the law. The law was good. right? The law is good. The law is for our benefit. The problem is they did not pursue a righteousness by faith. They did not approach the law and think, this law is the perfect law of God. It is demanding. Violating it means death. I need grace, right? I need to trust God for provision. See, we've taught, we teach in this church that no matter what era of redemptive history, man has always been saved by grace through faith. Even when an Israelite was under the law, he was only saved by trusting God's provision of righteousness. Just in the example of Abraham, Genesis fifteen six, Abraham believed God while uncircumcised, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. So Abraham sets an example as one who believes in God, who does not look to himself as a source of, for any kind of righteousness or any kind of validation before God or by God. No, he must trust in God for the provision of righteousness, a righteousness not his own. So this is the kind of legalism we have in view here. This burden comes, this burden of laws and traditions or whatever combination you find in in, in what is taught as binding is going to be wrongly expressed if you strip faith from it. Another one is grace. Think about grace. works hand in hand with faith. We're not meant to obey the commandments of God apart from grace. It is His very grace that enables us to keep His commandments. We need grace. 
think sometimes we forget, and I think the Pharisees forgot the same thing. And if you read their, the, the pattern of their behavior throughout the Gospels, and even the pattern of behavior from the Judaizers who were constantly harassing Christians, uh, you would find, you don't find a lot of forgiveness. You don't find a lot of mercy. You, find, you, 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 basically, you basically find a God who is without any of those things. What recourse is there for the lawbreaker since then and now we are all lawbreakers? Well, it seems like according to the Pharisees, the answer was more law. Do this, do this, do this, do this, right? And yet all it served to do was be a crushing burden. Seemingly without number. And you tie them on men's shoulders. This reminds me of... uh, used to read this book when I was a kid. How many of you read Aesop's Fables, if you're familiar with that at all? All right, I got some head shakes. Awesome. Not the only nerd in the building. All right, Aesop's Fables. One of my favorite ones, and it perfectly illustrates this, is one called the, uh, the, horse, and, the horse and the Donkey, sometimes the horse and the mule, depending on the translation. And the story goes thusly is that a donkey is walking along the road and he has a very heavy load on his back and his master is in front leading him along. Walking behind the donkey was a horse, obviously larger and stronger than the donkey. Then the donkey, we've talked about talking donkeys before, so we'll have no problem here. The donkey, panting and wheezing, says to the horse, Mr. Horse, can you please help me with this heavy load? The weight is killing me. So the horse is just walking free, no load, no burden. But the horse smugly replies, well, it's your load, carry it yourself. A few steps later down the road, the donkey collapses and dies. Think, oh, oh no. Turn over the page, and what is pictured is pretty alarming. There is a horse, and not only is he now carrying the load that the donkey was carrying, he is also bearing the dead donkey on his back. I think the lesson is pretty clear. Not only did he have to bear the burden of the original load, but now the horse, majestic as he was, is also responsible for carrying the dead and now useless donkey. Provides, I think, a very timely illustration for us this morning. The fair weight of legalism and, I think, extra rituals was heaped upon the unwitting souls of the Jews. It was literally killing them. And yet they have nothing of grace. They have nothing of mercy. They have nothing of divine provision and sufficiency. You think about no wonder at this point in biblical history the Messiah was so desired. I think the law itself has 600 plus laws. We understand that, that burden. And yet it seemed fit to the religious leaders at the time to, to add to that, even though to add to a, a law that was already good. And yet, what did they succeed in doing? Presenting a God who was never satisfied. Presenting a God who is never pleased. Presenting a God whose judgment against someone is never satisfied. A God that just cannot ever be pleased. And I think we fall into that same trap of teaching today in a variety of ways, and I think too numerous to mention. And yet the answer is, is clear. How is God pleased? God is pleased today through the sacrifice of His Son. He is the, that, that the Lord Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. And even though Christ had not yet been crucified back then, one could still offer a sacrifice 
in faith, one could still prevail upon the grace of God and be saved and receive forgiveness. But when we present the law in such a fashion, we're presenting a dead orthodoxy that simply cannot save. As good as the law is, when we present it in this fashion, we present a law that only ends up being a burden. Not a, not a law of liberty, as the New Testament describes. Not a royal law, as is also described. The law should be freeing to us this side of the cross. The law should be a, seen as a, as a path to freedom in which we are able to walk in faith, walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. But in this sense, not at all. It, if, if, you, if we are teaching things in our church and they become nothing more than a heavy burden that are, that's breaking people, then we're doing something wrong. And Paul is clear that the law could never impart life anyway. If we do not prevail upon the grace and mercy of God by faith, all the law does is shut up and condemn. Only Christ can impart life. So if we are proclaiming anything else other than the Lord Jesus Christ that is sufficient to give us spiritual life and vitality, we are preaching a false gospel and we are giving a false hope. And this is the very thing Peter talks about that must be burned away. Legalism must be burned away. We can't add restriction after restriction, law after law, that completely obfuscates the purpose of the gospel. Because when you try to supplement grace with law, all you do is end up supplanting it. And just to be clear, listen to this very carefully. You may excuse yourself because you are not one, as Jesus describes here, as tying up heavy burdens. Some professing Christians are so biblically illiterate they couldn't discern the difference between believing in the gospel and believing in themselves. But I would ask in spite of this, do you personally see it as an overly taxing burden to lift, as Jesus says, a finger to assist your brother or sister in their affliction? Do you see it as spiritual drudgery to simply come alongside someone and point them to grace? I think some of us have become like the sluggard in the Proverbs. We, we, we grab food and we lift our hand to eat it and you just think, oh no, it's too, it's too much of a burden. That we become so spiritually careless and lazy, we, we can't even lift a finger. And note this, note the contradiction here. Note the work and diligence and meticulous nature of tying up heavy burdens. You know, think, about, think about the vision that gives us. You're tying up heavy burdens. Where did you get that rope? Right? You had to go and find a rope somewhere to tie this heavy burden on someone. So, so this is not a burden that easily falls off. It's not light. It's not something where we can carry it for a long, for a long period of time. And you put it on men's shoulders, it becomes a back-breaking work. It weighs them down rather than lifting them up. And yet, at the same time, in spite of how diligent they are to weigh the, these people down... They do not lift a finger. They are unwilling. This is a hard issue. They are unwilling to lift a finger. I think we just fall into the same, the same trap sometimes. And yeah, we may, we may think we're willing, but then, I, but then I wonder, are we always making excuses as to why we can't help each other? Are we always excusing ourselves to go do something else? 
to keep, to keep those who are afflicted and who need help at a distance. That we always have something better to do. You know, we talk a lot about those entrusted to your spiritual care. And I think, okay, well, how about in regards to that? Are you giving your kids, your spouse, your closest friends, are you pointing them to grace? Are you, are you pointing them to the sufficiency of Christ? Are you helping them bear their burdens? Are you introducing them and reintroducing them again and again to the one who actually bore the burden for all of us? That's a real question we must answer. Because anything other than that is simply legal. It's the religion of man. And it does untold damage to the people of God. It's really sad when it comes to that. We think about, think about the nature of man. Man was created upright. Right? We were created to walk with God, to enjoy fellowship with Him. And yet ever since the curse handed down in the garden, think of Job 25.4, how then can a man be just with God? Or how can he be clean who is born of woman? Then you look at, down to verse 6. Because that's a good question. It's a question of the ages. But verse 6, how much less man, that maggot, <laughs> and the son of man, that worm? Right? It's like we're just this pathetic little slimy wriggling thing that's just rolling around in the dirt. And when the sun comes out, we just dry up and die. Man is a vapor. Appears for a little while and then it's gone. We're suddenly snuffed out. So we have a conundrum here, obviously. We can take this frailty and add new burdens or we can cast ourselves and encourage one another to cast ourselves at the foot of the cross and be released of these burdens. We can't do this without grace. And yet this is the Pharisees' protocol. And for all they do whenever they get a proselyte, as Jesus Himself will say, they make them twice a son of hell. As even the Pharisee is. We see this domination in John chapter 9. The story of the man born blind. It was at this point in Jesus' ministry that if anyone confessed that Jesus was the Christ, He would be put out of the synagogue. That's why I call it a religious mafia. They ran the place. Then there was no place for those who would follow Christ. And so this is what happened to this man. Accused of being completely born in sin and put out of the, put out of the synagogue. I think this remains the same issue we deal with today. We, we tie these burdens and then we're dismissive when those burdens cannot be borne. How hypocritical is that? So you see how this all connects. Hypocrisy will inevitably beget legalism. Unless you see things the way we do, the Pharisee says, you have no part with us. And so we have to ask ourselves very seriously, where is the gospel in all of this? We, 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 we declare, right? We declare to people, we preach the gospel. We preach Christ and Him crucified. Where is it in this? That's the question. We read Isaiah 53, Surely our griefs He Himself bore and our sorrow He carried. Where's the Gospel? Right? Where's that Gospel? Where's the Gospel which says He Himself bore our sins in His own body on the tree that we being dead in our sins might live under righteousness? Where's that Gospel in legalism? It's thrown out. Where is the Gospel which says, come to Me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. In Matthew 11.28, we read this, take My yoke upon you and learn from Me. See, a, a different yoke altogether. 
For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. You see, with the pharisaical attitude of legalism, there is no gentleness. There is certainly not a God who gives gentleness. There is no humility in heart, and there is no rest. I mean, what blessed news is that to someone who is burdened beyond belief, broken from legalism, broken from a system that gains no ground, broken from self-righteousness for their own sin, from this looming condemnation, from their impending eternal damnation. Oh man, if I could underscore one thing to you guys say, it is that we need rest. Our souls can be so restless, especially for those who are not born again. We need a Savior who is gentle, who is humble. We need that, we need that God as presented in the Gospels. A God who is righteous, but a God who saves. A God who has compassion on sinners. You see, legalism has no compassion for the weak. And we are all weak! In and of ourselves, we have no strength. But in our weakness, in Christ, we are strong. And we need Christ. Spotless Lamb of God, a friend to sinners, a friend to those who are burdened, who are restless, who are without hope. Where, what happened to the Gospel of rest? Not a Gospel of leisure, but a, but a Gospel of rest from our burdens. A gospel of rest from our own striving. We preach a gospel of repentance. We preach one of regeneration. We preach one of redemption. We preach one of reconciliation and righteousness. There's a lot of R's in our gospels. But man, when do, how often do we fail still to preach a gospel of rest? As if righteousness and, and even sin are things we still, of which we still must bear the burden. And whenever we do that, we take the attention away from Christ, our wonderful Savior who has borne those burdens up for us and gives us His righteousness and gives us a yoke that we can hold up, a light yoke. And even within this yoke is fulfilling the law it was meant to be. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself in the power of the Holy Spirit. By all the grace and freedom that God Himself provides. But it's not by our own work, friends. It's by the very work of Christ. His yoke is easy, His burden is light. How often do we fail to tell ourselves that and even to tell others? Colossians 3.10 frames it this way. We put on the new man. What does this yoke look like? It's a new man. The new yoke is a new man. Colossians tells us who is daily being renewed to the image of the One who created Him. And as we put this on, we find ourselves more and more at, you know, under the work of the Holy Spirit resembling Jesus Christ. That's what it is. That's the long-term effect of putting on the new man. Hardly the picture of what Jesus is describing here. These untold heavy burdens that weigh us down. That in no way lift us up. But we see here in Colossians 3.10 the picture of the power of grace operating in a man who is freely, freely justified in Christ. And we would never experience this 
until that heavy yoke is taken off our own shoulders and put on Christ who has laid His life down for us. Until that happens, we can never put on the new man, simply acting in accordance with our new nature. But that is what Christ has come to do. And so by grace, we follow His example. Rather than tying unbearable burdens on men's shoulders, we point them to Christ who bears that burden for all of His sheep. And we present that in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, this is interesting because the Pharisees considered common people unclean. You know, think, what would you think of me if after I preached here, I kind of just walked behind the curtain or walked out the side door, rushed so no one really saw me, so no one could say hi, if I just acted like I was above you? And you would think, well, why would I want to have anything to do with that kind of person? But that was, that was the spiritual bondage they were under. And you think of Jesus who went so far as to touch lepers. And the amazingly ironic thing is that if you touched a leper, you would also be unclean. You would probably get leprosy as well. But Jesus, in touching them, not only was not contaminated, He cleansed them. That's what the Gospel does. What a beautiful picture. And yet, how far we are from that sometimes. That's what we call getting your hands dirty. See, this is not just for the preacher and the teacher. This is for all who are part of the body of Christ. We get our hands dirty. That's what it means to be in the midst of God's people, to love and serve one another. To see that under the blood of Christ, we've all been made clean, right? None of us are defiled. That's what it means to have compassion for the weak. Personal contact. Not this smug and demanding disposition that leaves others to bear their own crushing weight. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.14, and we urge you, brothers, warn those who are idle, encourage the timid, help the weak, be patient with everyone. I mean, this sounds easy at first. Do you realize that some of your most vocal critics are going to be the ones who are most weighed down, and you're not going to want to go near them because they're so critical of you? But even these ones are the ones that are the most burdened and miserable. I'll tell you, even here in this very text, the ones who are the most burdened and miserable are the Pharisees. The ones who are supposed to teach the Word in such a way so that people prevail upon God's grace. And yet that's absent. And yet even within our own body, those are the ones who need the most grace often. Most often. Those are the ones who need the most compassion. are completely oblivious to their own stance before the Lord. Listen to Galatians 5.1. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. That is just a simple, simple command. As long as you stand free, as long as you stand firm, you will not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. It's as if God wants us to live as free men because that's what we are. So live freely. Live freely as justified men and women under, the, uh, under God's provision of righteousness by His own grace. And in that way, even legalism will be burned away. I look forward to the day where legalism, where a false righteousness is but a fragment of church life. And when it rears its ugly head, it is put down quickly. 
I think we got time for the third one. So we have hypocrisy, we have legalism. Here's the third one, and this may be the most offensive of all. And they're all linked together, keep in mind. The third thing that must be burned away is pride. The proud person has no clue about his own wretchedness. We just just used the word oblivious. The proud person above all is oblivious. He has no clue about his own wretchedness. This is the person who is high and mighty. So let's look at the text again. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. They love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by men. So, some serious, there's some serious concerns going on here. Let's look at this. First thing. Everything they do is done for men to see. See, that's where we go wrong. The, the second we start doing things on account of men is where the church runs into serious problems. Everything they do is for men, is to be noticed by men. So there is sort of this spiritual showboating that tries to demonstrate to other men, putting God aside, who cares what God says, but that men may see me, that men may think that I am something I am not. See, this is, the, this is a blaring manifestation of, of hypocrisy and, of course, legalism. Pride will always wear hypocrisy and legalism as some perverse badge of honor. And so how does, how does the Lord Jesus describe this? Let's look at the text again carefully. He says, For they in their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. So there is some kind of fashion show that is occurring that is occurring in this context. First thing is phylacteries. What is a phylactery? Glad you asked. It's basically a box that had scripture written on it, and the religious leaders would parade about in these sort of hats. Tassels were another commonplace adornment, and what it, this probably is is, is an over-literal interpretation of Deuteronomy 6.8. This is where the Lord commands the Israelites, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. This is speaking, of, speaking to, to the Word of God. right? The Word of God that it was supposed to be taught to successive generations. Some other verses here. Deuteronomy 11.18 Therefore, you shall impress these words of mine on your heart and on your soul. Okay, so the main issue here isn't so much what is seen externally. This is, a, this is meant, to, it's meant to be an outward expression of how one internalizes the Word of God. Therefore, you impress these words of mine on your heart and on your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. Now listen to this. You shall teach them to your son talking of them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you rise up. So you notice, discipleship was supposed to be an ongoing opportunistic thing. It wasn't supposed to be confined to five minutes in one day. As you, as you walk, right? as you sit, as you rise, that the Word of God was constantly on your lips to disciple and instruct and to raise, to raise, to raise a godly heritage within your own household and, 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 and in an extended in your community. But it pointed more to the reality of the internalized Word of God 
than it did to be a, a, an opportunity to show off to other people how spiritual you were. Also write this down, Numbers 15, 37-38. The Lord also spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and tell them that they shall make for themselves tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations, and that they shall put on the tassel of each corner a cord of blue. It shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord. So you see, so this was in the law. Yeah, tassels. Jesus probably wore tassels as well. Just as prescribed. But what was the point of the tassel? To remind everyone how great you are? Or to point people to the commandments of the Lord? To, 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 for it to be a visual aid to help people treasure what the Lord has said. And I think what we see from the Pharisees and, and teachers of the law here, it's pretty plain. They lengthen their tassels. Lengthen their tassels. Broaden their phylacteries. Look like a bunch of blockheads walking around. In order to look good. It's reminded me of something, I think I've talked about this before, but... You know, being a child of the 80s and 90s, there were various uh, manifestations of spiritual attire. And I think the one that was most popular was that, you guys remember the WWJD bracelet? What would Jesus do? Oh man, if you wore one of those, you were styling. You were one of the godly people, right? Hey, hey, we're going to go out. We're going to tear up the town. We're going to cause some trouble. So-and-so's throwing a party tonight. There's no, no, no adult supervision. You in? Hold on. What would Jesus do? Well, I don't know. I don't know. But I don't know. What, you know. Maybe I shouldn't go to that party, right? It puts, it puts what, would, what Jesus would do in the realm of the hypothetical as if we don't know what Jesus would do. But it became, it became like, a, like a 20th century phylactery or a tassel. It was a symbol of someone's spirituality. The problem is we weren't asking what did Jesus do, right? What did Jesus actually accomplish? And then to live in light of that. Sometimes we don't know exactly what Jesus would do in a given situation. But what it did is it threw that into the realm of the hypothetical. But I'd say the bigger problem is that many weren't actually even asking what Jesus would do. And yet that's what happened. And that was just, that was just the start. right? And because of the Kind of became a Protestant rosary in a sense. And you think, does that does does that that question even mean anything anymore? You know, and then, and then from then on, from from there on, it was. Uh, I think next was the prayer of Jabez. Remember, extend my. I just want. I just want a little more land, Lord. Can you extend, extend my property? Right. The prayer of Jabez. Pray this every day, and you will experience untold blessings in your life. Right. That became the next thing. What would Jesus do? Do you, pray the, do you pray the prayer of Jabez? That was, the, that was the next thing. That was the next tassel in phylactery. And then I think the thing after that was, do you, um, do, are, you, are you purpose-driven? Do you live the purpose-driven life? And on, I mean, it's always something. Oh yes, I'm purpose-driven. I have been for 40 days. I don't know what to do on the 41st, but we're, we're getting there. All I'm saying, it's, it's, it's always some new shtick. Always some new trend. And I'm not saying that none of these things have any merit or any goodness built in whatsoever, but it's what people did with them. That they became these massive distractions. 
that serve more to, to puff them up than to actually draw them close to Christ in humility and dependence and faithfulness to the Gospel. It just became a tool of pride. And I would say as the Pharisees broadened their phylacteries and lengthened their tassels, they probably looked like some, some fangled combination of a squid and a jackass. Because when you, when you parade yourself like that, all you end up doing is looking stupid. Especially when the hypocrisy and the legalism start to show. The pride becomes so obvious and disgusting that, no one, that the only reason people are going to follow you is fear. Not because they see you as an example worthy to follow, but that's pride. As the dictionary describes a higher inordinate opinion of one's own dignity, importance, merit, or superiority, whether as cherished in the mind or as displayed in bearing, conduct, etc. Ooh, that about describes it, right? That is what man has been beset with, right? It is often said that most sins flow inevitably out of pride. Where there is any sin, there is pride. Because pride inherently is self-exalting. Pride always seeks to rob God of His glory. right? And we're all born as glory thieves. right? We seek the glory for ourselves. We compete with God for supremacy. We want the spotlight. We want the attention. And that is why God hates it so much is because He's the one being worthy in this universe that deserves the attention and glory, recognition, love and adoration. It's no crime for God to desire the glory because He deserves all of it. And so when we, are when we are proud, we try to take what is due to Christ and Christ alone. See, this isn't just wrong. This is what we would call pure devilry. You are imitating Satan when you are proud. Now, what's interesting about this text, we don't want to miss this, we can, de we can describe pride from the dictionary, but here's how Jesus helps it understand it. And I think this is a really interesting way because we don't often think of pride and love going together, but Jesus identifies the pride of the Pharisees and, and, and teachers of the law by, by describing what it is that, lo that they love, what, what it is that matters most to them. So they take that most precious thing and completely pervert it. The quality of your love is only as good as its object. Right? So look at verses 6 and 7. They love the place of honor at banquets, the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted in the marketplaces and to have men call them rabbi. Right? So this really hits, hits the target in terms of seeing what lies in the mind and heart of the spiritual imposter. It all comes down to what they love. How do we know that we are manifesting spiritual pride? According to this text, it's a matter of what you love. Your deepest desires and commitment will reflect your brokenness or lack thereof before the living God. So, look at the, so we see these four objects, right? The objects of their affection and devotion. What matters to them? They like the place of honor, right? Note, these are all public places. These are all places where men abound, where people are walking around. These are places to be noticed. Right Back then, they didn't have TikTok videos that they could do in the privacy of their own home and then have 18 bajillion adoring followers watching their stupid videos. Right? I'm serious. So you have to go and find an audience. Right? So that's what they did. 
They'd go to public places, the important seats, the seats of honor, the greetings, being called rabbi, which means my great one. How would you like to be addressed that? Hello, my great one. Well, hello, sir. It's great honor, and it's public honor. And just so, just so we're clear, never sit in the most important seat unless God himself calls you up there. And if he calls you up there, then sit in that seat. Right? That is an honor that is only given by God. Other than that, know your place. But here's the question. What is, what is missing from this description? Okay, what, is, what is the dead giveaway of spiritual pride here? There is no love for God. Right? They only love men and the attention of men. But there's no love for God. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is not only what you love, but as Jesus asks, what do you love, love? Love, love. They love four things. What do you really love? What do you really treasure? Do you love honor and titles? Do you love recognition? Do you love being put on a pedestal? Do you, do you love all the followers who you don't really know? Do you crave for likes on your post that's been shared a thousand times already? Do you love that? Or do you love, 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 love Jesus Christ? That's the question. That has eternal weight behind it. And following that, if you love Jesus Christ, do you, do you have a passion for His glory? Are you hungry for His Word? See, what do you love, 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 love? What are you committed to? And what are those things that draw you away from Christ and His glory and end up displacing it? Let's put this another way, especially in the context of Second Peter, which will hopefully uh, be in again next Lord's Day. According to Second Peter... And we know this historically. The old creation has been found out. It has been exposed. It has been seen for what it is in all of its spiritual apostasy and temporalness. It is being burnt, as it's being burned away and, sub, and, and subdued by the new creation over which Christ is currently ruling. So the question then is, knowing that, what things are we so committed to and preoccupied with that you make excuse after excuse to take you away from that most precious work? I think that's how pride manifests itself today especially. Not only the desire for attention, but the excuses we make in order that we may ignore the most important attention, that is the attention we give to the work of, of making much of Jesus Christ. That's how it manifests itself. Where is that room for Christ and His Word? Where is love for Him? Because if there is no love for him, we're just playing dress up, right? Like the Pharisees, it's just a costume party. Whether a broad, a broad phylactery, a long tassel, a WWJD bracelet with bling on it, all we end up doing is looking like fools. If we love anything more than Christ, especially if we love recognition from men. See, that's how the old order is dressed up, and that's what must be exposed and continually burned away. Because it's all show, and beneath that apparent spiritual garb is the stench of a whitewashed tomb. Once again, something that Jesus will describe. And He is going to the cross soon. We know that from the narrative. And it's like He does the people one more favor. All of this, guys, is a sham. And all of it's going to be burned away. Follow Me. Believe in Me. Return to the grace of God and be reconciled to Him through Me. 
Anything else is just pretend. So that's a pretty bleak picture, but the Lord gives us a solution. And I'm going to try to wrap all of this up. We could spend easily another sermon on it, but let's, let's take a look to the Lord's answer. So we have these things that must be burned away, that continually beset and afflict the church and distract us from our mission of advancing the kingdom of God through the faithful proclamation of the gospel so that Christ is loved and treasured and believed upon. So, hypocrisy, legalism, pride, is there a go-to? What is, what is the answer? What is the response to all of this? And I believe Jesus gives this to us. Starting in verse 8, and it's, and it's really this. Here, it, it's humility. That's what it is. The answer to all of these things is humility. It's knowing who God is and knowing who we are for Him. And that's why Jesus says in verse 8, you are not to be called rabbi, for you have only one master and you are all brothers. You see what's going on here? Do not be called rabbi. It doesn't say, for you have one rabbi. It says, for you have one master. So you see the attention that being called rabbi got you, right? If you were a rabbi, you had some kind of authority. You were seen as a master. But he says, no, this is not to be true of you. You are all brothers. We are the body of Christ, right? We relate to one another, not in some pecking order, not in, not in, not in the context of some spiritual hierarchy, but as brothers and sisters in Christ, equally saved by grace through faith. And do not call anyone on earth Father, for you have one Father, and He is in heaven. And naming names, it seems as though the Roman Catholic Church did not get the memo on that. That we have one Holy Father, and He is in heaven. Then verse 10, Nor are you to be called teacher, for you have one teacher, the Christ. That, does, that doesn't mean that no one teaches you. I mean, obviously, I'm up here teaching you the Word of God. But I think in this sense, the best way to understand it is that we have one ultimate source or repository for authority, for divine authority. And it comes from Christ. In Him are found all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And then he says this, the greatest among you will be your servant. So if you're going to seek, if you're going to seek prominence, if you're going to seek attention, that is not the way of the cross. The way of the cross is to be humbled. Remember, if you are in Christ, right? You have died with Him. You've been buried with Him. You've been raised to walk in newness of life. In newness of life. And see, none of these spiritual titles belong to us. They only belong to God. And so we look to Him and only Him. And so, it is with humility that we regain our spiritual footing. It is humility that really lights the fire of revival in the church that will burn away hypocrisy, legalism, and pride. It is humility where true greatness is found. And that's why Jesus goes on to say, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. That is the way of Christ. Right? If we are to be united with Him, right, we are united with Him in humility as well. It was only through Christ humbling Himself to death, even death on a cross, that we can be raised, that we can be exalted. But if any of us is to be exalted, it's not going to come through exalting ourselves. Our praise is to come from God. Our exaltation is to come from the resurrection life that we have by the grace of God in Christ. That is the only way to be exalted. But first, if any of that is to happen, we must first be humbled. A great example is in Daniel 4.28. 
Remember where King Nebuchadnezzar was walking upon his balcony in Babylon, and he says, is this not Babylon that I have built? See, it's all me, 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 I, 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 my kingdom, my power, my name forever. And then, of course, he becomes humbled. He becomes like an animal running out in the fields, eating grass, his nails grown long, basically acting like he's out of his mind. And that's what pride, that's what pride does, friends. It makes, a beast out of, it makes a beast out of people. It'll make a beast out of you. And you will become like an unreasoning animal. And only in humility can we function before God the way we were designed to. We were designed to walk before God in humility and dependence, knowing this profound creator-creature distinction that seems to be lost on the bulk of humanity today. And I would say it takes a supernatural act of God to turn pride into humility. That pride would be burned away and humility would be the natural disposition of our heart. And because only God can humble a man, it follows also that only God can exalt a man. And so that's the solution to all of this. Cultivated by understanding your rightful place and God's rightful place. To know our role and to know our humble estate before God. So very briefly, to close this up, how does humility burn away all of these things? Because humility must be the fire that burns away this to expose it and to do away with it. How about hypocrisy? Well, here's what humility does. Humility is that state of mind in which we are able to keep ourselves from thinking that we are somehow above what we teach, right? That this applies to you and yet not to me. It is a humble heart which says, I must voluntarily place myself under the authoritative Word of God that as I preach, I also practice so that I'm not just speaking words, so that I am not usurping authority, so that I am not putting on a false integrity, so that I fail to give any spiritual legacy to those entrusted to my spiritual care. Hypocrisy, or hypocrisy is burned away when I am humble and I subject myself to the Word of God. Humility must also burn away legalism. How does humility do that? Well, humility allows us to see our spiritual frailty and weakness. To be dependent upon the Gospel just like anyone else is. Helps me realize that I am free from the curse of the law. That in Christ I am credited as if I have upheld it myself. And to walk by the Spirit in the grace of God. Right? And what happens here is that I put on display a true righteousness. A righteousness that God works within me. Because it is a righteousness that God has actually imputed to me. And it will show up as I grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in His freedom that I am able to show compassion to others and lead them in the grace of God as demonstrated through Christ. Thirdly, humility must burn away pride. Of course, we see humility as pride's opposite. Whereas pride wants to exalt myself, I see humility as an attitude which says, no, Christ must be exalted. Right? I must decrease. Christ must increase. It allows me to see just how dependent upon His grace I am. That I am sinful. That God is holy. And that I must be declared righteous and not with a righteousness of my own. 
it'd be easy to talk about this for a long time, guys. Pride is a, t- pride is a sin that dies so hard, right? It, it's one of those, it's that part of the flesh where we just are constantly pursuing recognition and attention and exaltation apart from grace. Where we put so much stock in what others think rather than what God thinks. But it is humility that will annihilate the inner Pharisee so that I will seek Christ's exaltation, that I will seek for others to treasure Him, that I am only a humble servant. And yet, and yet, humility anchors itself on the promise that in Christ, I too will share in His resurrection, that I too will be glorified rather than seeking it in and of myself. And so in all these things, remember this text. Because these are the things that are being burned away. These are the characteristics of the old creation. These are, these are the things that, that die so hard and yet we must daily acknowledge our dependence upon a God who gives every grace to see these things burned away and gives us every provision to put on the new man. So I'll close with Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me. And lead me in the everlasting way. See, this is the prayer of a humble man. This is the prayer for us today that God will sow within our hearts both individually and corporately the humility to depend upon Him. The humility to depend upon His righteousness. And the humility that enables us to walk consistently with the Gospel we claim to believe. So may God bless us with that endeavor and equip us with every grace to do so. Let's pray. Father, thank You again for Your love and faithfulness to us. We thank You for this wonderful uh, passage that we have uh, the words of Je- from the words of Jesus Himself that we would, that we would uh, walk humbly before You. We recognize the pitfalls of, of hypocrisy, of legalism, of pride, and how they with its various tentacles, they, they, uh, they hamper this good work that we've been called to. It is especially characteristic of unbelief, but we find, Lord, that it assails us constantly. The temptation to, to fall into those things. To fall into hypocrisy, especially when no one's looking. To fall into legalism when we believe that we have attained a certain righteousness that, all, that everyone else should follow. To fall into pride when we have forgotten that it is all of grace by which we're saved and that our only boast is You. So Lord, even though we could talk extensively about humility, I I pray that by Your Spirit we would get it, we would understand it, that that we would see ourselves in light of our dependence upon You, that we would have a lowliness of heart and an exalted view of You, knowing that all these things come from You, Lord. We desire to be humbled, but we also desire to be exalted. Because that is, that is what You designed to do in us. That what Christ reconciles through His death and resurrection includes us. That we've been reconciled to You through His blood. And that we, even now, look forward to the fulfillment of the great promise of glorification. 
and that you have exalted us with your Son. We, we, we thank you for that. But we know that is only by grace. And please forgive us for when we try to do that our own way, using our own strength and wisdom. When you give every resource to do so, depending completely on you. So Lord, we thank you for your Holy Spirit. We thank you for the Spirit that equips us and empowers us to love and serve one another, to, to bear these burdens with each other rather than piling up new ones. Help us, Lord, to see that. Help us to be mindful of, of the various challenges that we face. Help us give each other attention to serve one another with compassion. Lord, that we wouldn't be clueless. That we wouldn't be clueless like Pharisees. But that we would be like Christ. And that as we put Him on daily, You would give us the the eyes and ears to, and the heart to serve each other in brotherly love. All for Christ's glory. And it's in His name we pray. Amen.